0: Well, it's been a fairly lengthy journey since April of last year uh, that we have been in the book of Romans as a church, and our pastor has been taking us through uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are here uh, facing the end of this book. There's a little bit of sadness, even as Dale mentioned that in his last sermon uh, in the book before he left, uh, to be putting away all those commentaries and to be uh, thinking that we're going to set this aside for the time being and move on, uh, and yet I think God has done some great things. I know in my heart, as we've explored this book, and I trust He has in yours as well. So we are at the home stretch. We are in the last chapter, chapter sixteen of the book of Romans, and we have two weeks uh, to cover that. Uh, this week uh, we'll cover verses one through twenty, and then we'll conclude next week, as only the apostle Paul can, in doxology. In worship in wrapping up this wonderful gospel and giving God praise for his gospel. But I do invite you now to please turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 16, and if you'd like to grab a pew Bible, uh, don't feel embarrassed about that. Uh, It's always helpful, I think, to be following along uh, with the Word of God. You can find the passage on page 950, so grab one of those. They're there for your use We want to encourage you to follow along in God's word today. Let's read God's word now, starting in verse 1 of chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphras, who was the first convert in Christ, to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephana and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis has worked hard in the Lord? Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Narius, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious letter to the Romans, this glorious gospel that has brought so many to you throughout the millennia. And Father, we thank you for this passage today which on the surface may seem like a list of people's names only. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word for we know that your word is powerful and can help us to conform our lives and selves to the image of your son. And to this end we pray, amen. Well, as we have reviewed and as you know well, the first 11 chapters of this letter, Paul lays out the gospel more thoroughly and with more explanation than in any other letter of his that we have in the canon of scripture. He shows to us how the gospel is for all, Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction of race, nationality, And then for the next three and a half chapters, he focuses in on the doctrine of the church. How do we, as a community who have been transformed by the gospel, work together to promote the gospel to those who are not yet alive in Christ? And finally, in the last chapter and a half, Paul takes some personal liberty to talk candidly and openly with the believers in Rome. So we saw last week, Paul tells the members of the Roman church how he feels about them why he was a little hard on them in his instruction, and why he hasn't been able to visit them yet. He then explains his future plans to make a visit there, and then he asks them to pray with him to that end. Of course, we know he never made it. Or he did, but in chains. As Pastor Hunt pointed out last week, the letter is becoming very personal at this point. In today's passage, Paul drills down even further and becomes immensely personal in his writing. He unmasks the theology professor to uncover the shepherd's heart of a pastor who deeply loves those placed in his care. So let's look again to the text in verse one. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. Paul's first pastoral order of business in chapter 16 is to care for the one he has entrusted with delivering his letter to Rome. Paul challenges each member of the church to reach out to this stranger who has recently showed up in their midst. Phoebe had traveled some 615 miles from her home in Corinth to Rome. That'd be kind of like one of us traveling from here to Philadelphia or Memphis or Miami, but without the benefit of modern transportation, no hotels or restaurants along the way. Lots of danger. We're not sure why Phoebe was chosen for this task. Apparently she was a woman of some means, for Paul says she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Maybe she was on a business trip to Rome. Or maybe she had some special access to the shipping industry or a way to get there that others didn't have. But we know that she was a faithful servant in her home church in Sincre, a suburb of Corinth, a a seaport of Corinth. In any case, Paul entrusted her with this important task. Phoebe was a precious sister in the Lord to Paul, and he wanted the Roman church to welcome her with open arms and to take care of her while she was there. So he put the challenge to all the members of that church to look after Phoebe as if Paul were there himself. This is a good reminder for us to be welcoming and loving of the strangers the Lord sends us and those who have been away from us for some time but then are able to come back. It's part of our calling as the body of Christ. Recently, one of our new missionaries shared something with me that was very disheartening. She relayed that upon returning to her home church after serving on the field for her first term that she received very little inquiry about her time away, and very little personal care from the members of her home church. They were nice enough, and after a short period of time, it was as though she had never left. She realized that they had been carrying on in her absence with their own busy lives and had not really given much thought to her for the last several years. After all, she was halfway around the world. Out of sight, out of mind. I was pleased that the context of her story was that she had been overwhelmed with how much love and interest she was already receiving on her first visit here as a new missionary, even though she hadn't been with us long. St. Andrews, may one of our missionaries never have an occasion to share such a testimony about us. But instead, may we give them a hero's welcome, pouring out love and concern for them and their children, embracing them with excitement at hearing what God has been doing in their ministry while they've been away. When they leave here for the field again, may they leave refreshed, energized, with the knowledge that 700 members of St. Andrew's Presbyterian have their back, and will be supporting them with the power of prayer. Let us welcome them in a manner, as Paul says, worthy of the saints, even as Paul expected for his friend Phoebe. Jesus had some very strong words about this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. There we read these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, You who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We never know who comes through the back door of our church. Anyone could be our sister Phoebe, a member of the family. May we always be welcoming, open, and loving to those who by divine appointment visit us here at St. Andrews. Next in our passage, Paul takes time and the ink and the paper in verses 3 through 16 to greet 26 church members and families by name. And remember, these letters were to be read publicly from the pulpit, if you will, Imagine if Dale sent us a letter from a sabbatical and I had to read it to you today, and in that letter he called out 26 of you by name. Might be a little awkward or a little embarrassing. Fortunately for the Romans, Paul was speaking positively about each of them. Do you think this gesture on Paul's part made them feel loved and cared for by him? Of course it did. This way of concluding a letter, or even in today's context, uh, email or text is certainly not foreign to us. We do this all the time, don't we? Speaking of missionaries, most of you are aware that Sharon and I have the privilege of having a close relationship with Sam and Lizzie Goodwin, who are currently in Munich, Germany. We have, for a number of months now, as I know many of you have been, counting down the days until their return. It's nine, in case you're wondering. Sam and I will occasionally communicate uh, as a means of mutual encouragement through email. And without fail, it is our habit to end the conversation with something like this. Give my love to Lizzie and the girls or give my love to Sharon and the boys, respectively. You know, it's never occurred to me once, even though it is somewhat of a habit, that this phrase is mechanical in nature or not from the heart. On the contrary, we both deeply love one another's families, and we expect that the truth of that will be communicated on behalf of one another, if not only through words, with maybe some hugs and kisses attached to it. This is the kind of affection that Pastor Paul greets these beloved followers of Christ in Rome this is the next point on your outline, that Paul celebrates individuals in the church by pointing out some of their service and gifting. And it's not just the elders, not just the leaders in the church. Paul knows that they're all part of the body. They're all important. Only a few paragraphs before, he was describing these that he has now named as toes, hands, eyes, ears, feet, limbs, etc., each with differing gifts, and yet for each one he has this deep affection. Real people, real issues, real gifts, trophies of grace in the church of Rome. Notice, let's look at just a few of these folks and some of the details of how he greets them. First in verse three he says, to greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. We're told in Acts that Paul originally met Priscilla, Prisca being the shortened or more familiar part of the name, and Aquila in Corinth, where he was writing this letter from. They were tent makers, just like Paul, and probably met him in the commercial center of town where they would have been practicing their trade. Maybe they set up their booths or shops next to one another, and Paul, in conversation with them perhaps, heard that they were Jews and began to strike up maybe a conversation and, and show them the way of Christ. And Priscilla and Aquila come to know the Lord. Well, they had gotten to Corinth because of persecution in Rome. The emperor had been persecuting the Jews there and Priscilla and Aquila fled to Corinth where they hooked up with Paul. Paul. And that wasn't the end of the relationship. They were there in Corinth with Paul for some time. And then when Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus to plant a church there, they followed him. They went with him. And when Paul left Ephesus to go on to Caesarea, Antioch, they stayed in Ephesus to help that church plant. It wouldn't be long till a fiery new preacher comes along. Apollos comes in through Ephesus. And he was zealous and he was on fire for the Lord, but he didn't have all the details quite right. And I just love this phrase that Luke gives us in that point of the story. And he says that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Apollos, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You see this? Perhaps I'm just speculating here. Okay, don't, this isn't scripture, but. Perhaps this older couple in the Lord who had spent all this time with Paul and this fiery preacher comes into town and is on fire for Christ, but he doesn't have it quite right, and they pull him aside and disciple him and train him in the Lord and say, no, this this is the true message you need to be preaching, and these are some errors that you have. And then they went on with their lives. Not famous, not preachers themselves, just servants in the church. Finally, when the persecution ended in Rome, they went back to Rome, to serve that church. And here we find out they've got a church meeting in their house. These faithful servants, no doubt Paul loved them dearly for the relationship that he had with them. Does this same level of devotion and affection define our relationships with in the church? It should, shouldn't it? He then greets Epinetus, who had the distinction of being the first convert of Christ in Asia. What a title that would be. Paul identifies Mary, who it simply says was a hard worker in the church. He mentions another couple, Andronicus and Junia, who had known Christ longer than Paul had known Christ. Maybe they were among the first converts at Pentecost. Perhaps from there they took the gospel back to Rome and helped plant that church. For some time, at, at one point in their ministry, they had been imprisoned with Paul for the sake of the gospel. Paul knew many of these folks, or at least he knew of them, and he loved them. He wanted to see them. They were real folks carrying out daily life as Christians in a pagan culture, diverse ethnically, Jew and Gentile, well-traveled city folks, cosmopolitan. But Paul dearly loved them. And these were those that he wanted to be with, wanted to spend time with? Are we intimately involved in the lives of one another here so that we could speak of our relationships as Paul did within the church? And if not, why not? Is there a better place other than here, in this place, in this room, to forge relationships that go deep in the Lord? Is there a better place for you to find that kind of friendship and lasting support and love? May God be pleased to continue to foster that kind of love here among us. As has been mentioned before this summer already, the leadership of our church encourages each of us to be involved in small groups in some capacity, something outside of this morning worship service where we can do life with one another. The community group ministry is is coming up again this fall, and if you're not part of a small group in some capacity here at the church, that's a great way to jump in, so be watching for those announcements. One other item I think that's important to point out here, and I don't wanna make a big deal about this because Paul doesn't make a big deal about it. In fact, it's really, in my mind, what he doesn't say and what's missing from the passage. Paul lists a number of women as well as men here. In fact, women are the first two names he mentions. He commended Phoebe and he entrusted her with no less a task than delivering his letter. And then he mentions Priscilla before her husband Aquila when recognizing them. He goes on to list men and women without any qualifying statements. Some have accused the Apostle Paul of being misogynistic in his writing. Well, Nothing could be further from the truth here. It's clear here that Paul had a high regard for his sisters in the Lord. He had high expectations of them, and he delighted in their service to the church. There's no belittling condescension here. We at St. Andrews, as does our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we believe that the scripture, much of it in Paul's letters, teaches that the church offices of deacon and elder are to be held by men. This goes along with what is called a complementarian view of the roles of men and women in marriage and in the church. But having different Yet, complementary roles does not mean that one sex is superior or inferior to the other. In Christ, Paul tells us in another place, there is no male or female, but we are one in him. It simply means we are to serve one another in differing roles. But what I want us to see here is that Paul doesn't set up some kind of false distinction. He honors the servants of Christ in his church, all of them male and female alike. He sees his brothers and sisters as joint heirs with Christ, serving alongside one another for the glory of God. Men, if you are in any way tempted from time to time to feel superior to our sisters in the Lord, then you need to repent of this and ask God for the grace to honor and appreciate your sisters for their gifting and service in the church. And ladies, if you're tempted to think less of your standing before Christ for any reason, recognize that that thinking is a lie from Satan. And may the Lord help us to mutually honor one another, regardless of gender, and see each other as Christ sees us. Paul finishes this section emphasizing the importance of affection among believers when he tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Culturally, whether it's a kiss, a hug, a side hug, or a handshake, the point is that we are physical beings and there is an element of spiritual healing in touch. God's people aren't to be cold and standoffish. We are to embrace one another with brotherly love and affection for one another. If if you're new here, And if you're here for any length of time, you're going to find out we're a touchy people. And if you you don't like that, it's going to be a little awkward. But that's part of this loving one another and encouraging one another. And that touch can often be that healing balm or salve that someone needs, that touch of love in Christ. In verses 17 and 18, Paul cautions against wolves in the church. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Some would say that it isn't loving to call out false teachers, that we shouldn't judge others' teaching or ministries. But isn't that the equivalent of saying that a loving shepherd shouldn't protect his sheep from the wolves? I mean, after all, a wolf's gotta eat too, right? Paul warns these believers who he loves about those who would penetrate their ranks and cause division, those who would throw doctrinal obstacles in the way. And these false teachers, he says, are to be avoided He makes a distinction between these folks and the true church. For these do not serve Jesus, but rather they serve their own appetites. They talk a good game and can deceive the naive. So what about today in our society? Are there any false teachers around? Well, of course there are. There always have been and there always will be. And quite honestly, it's all I can do not to give you my list right now. But I'm not sure that would be productive. But let me say this, if the preacher with the perfect smile on the other side of the TV screen looks into the camera and tells you all you need to do to have a five million dollar house and a Learjet like he has is to send him a little seed money, (laughs) I don't know, chances are he's a false teacher. Folks, the true gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with how big your house is, what kind of car you drive, or how much money you have in the bank. That may be the cult of the American prosperity gospel, but to claim it has anything to do with Jesus Christ shedding his blood on Calvary to buy his children's salvation is nothing short of blasphemy. This abhorrent prosperity gospel has now left the shores of America for some of the poorest countries in the world. Most notably the continent of Africa, where these slick purveyors of greed and covetousness are preying upon the poorest in the world. They fill their coffers with money offering false promises to these poverty-stricken believers that God owes it to them to make them healthy and wealthy. Then they come back to America to build their empires with the money they've collected, giving no thought to the wake of financial ruin and spiritual poverty they leave behind for the national pastors to clean up when they... What an insidious, evil message of false hope this is. It's high time the true church stand up against these charlatans who are taking such advantage of the least of these. I can assure you God will not let this travesty of the American church go unpunished. May God have mercy on us. Obviously, I don't really have an opinion on this subject. But if calling some of these folks out seems a bit unloving or harsh to you, I'd ask you this. How loving is it to allow them to continue to go unchallenged as they prey upon the poorest and most vulnerable among us with a false gospel that minimizes God, the God of the universe, to some sort of Santa Claus in the sky, all the while keeping the true words of life from those who need to hear them the most? For good shepherds to stand by and allow the sheep to be eaten by ravenous wolves seems far more unloving to me. And finally, in verses 19 through 20, this loving shepherd, Paul, comforts and encourages the church. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here Paul, as a loving pastor, brags on them a little like a proud papa. This church was known by their reputation among the believers for its obedience to the Lord. So much so that Paul relished in those reports. He took great pride and joy for their testimony. And yet even with that, Paul didn't want them to become complacent or satisfied. He wanted them instead to regain what had been lost in the Garden of Eden. Wisdom and innocence. Here in the central capital of the known world, among all the nations of the world, among all the pagan religions of the world, all of the political power and hedonistic pleasures that Rome had to offer, here in the middle of it all, he wanted them to be an enclave, an oasis, a paradise on earth of sorts. He wanted them to move beyond simply obeying and conforming to God's word. He wanted them to have the wisdom to know and promote goodness, even as God had created the world good and to be innocent of evil as our first parents had been before the fall. Think about what an amazing goal that is for Paul, for many of these people who had come out of such wickedness and out of such pagan backgrounds. Adam and Eve were disobedient. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were opened and they lost their innocence seeking to become wise, they became fools. You notice the Genesis language here in this passage? Even in the next phrase, he reminds them of the covenant made with Adam. The promise when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You remember God said to Satan when pronouncing his curse after Adam and Eve fell into sin, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What a great encouragement to the church in Rome that they, as members of the body of Christ, the seed of the woman, would see God crush the head of Satan through them. Dark days of extreme persecution were ahead of this church that Paul loved so much. No doubt, most of that list of 26 names that we just read Most of them probably would find themselves dying a martyr's death for Christ. But here in this moment, in this intimate letter, Paul reminded them that they were to be a haven in the midst of the wickedness around them, that the church would ultimately be the church triumphant, crushing Satan. Martin Luther, whose 95 theses were written 500 years ago, this coming October, sparking the Protestant Reformation, put it this way in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And then Paul concludes this section before his final words with this phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Above all, and at the end of it all, Paul wished for them the most important thing of all, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ found only in the good news of the cross. For without this foundational tenet of the faith, all else would be futile. For in this The gospel of God is our only hope, our perfect plea, our perfect righteousness. And so, in these concluding words of a loving shepherd to the sheep at the Church of Rome, each of us too is challenged to love the strangers in our midst in an uncommon way, to welcome them in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And may the Lord also enable us to celebrate one another, to celebrate individuals in the church, to rejoice in each other's gifts and to encourage each other along the journey. And if necessary, out of love for one another, may we caution against wolves in the church so that those less mature among us aren't led astray in the faith. May we be a church known for our obedience to the word, wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil and let us comfort and encourage one another in the success of the gospel despite what we may see around us, knowing that the church will prevail over the powers of darkness and we can live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious gospel is ours we possess because of Christ Jesus thank you for this good news that has saved us that has secured us that enables us to function here today as a body as a unit as one and such diversity yet represented in this room and yet we are one in Christ and so father indeed Grant these requests that we have seen in your word today. Enable this church, St. Andrews, to be a church like the body of believers there in Rome in these ways. Help us to be a light in the darkness. Help us to be a refuge for the weary saints. Help us to be a comfort for those who are in sorrow. And Father, now I pray that as we go from this place that you would help us and enable us to love one another as you have loved us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.